Today we're starting a new series. It's from the greatest sermon that has ever been preached by the greatest preacher that has ever preached. You probably know what it is. You may have heard of it. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We're going to abbreviate it, the S-O-K-M. And it's one of those things where Jesus gathers hundreds, maybe thousands of people around him to preach this message. And, And the crazy thing about it is how he gathered, why did these people come to him? Because this is just shortly after Jesus has spent 40 days in the wilderness praying and fasting. And then he comes out, and and shortly after that, he preaches to the multitudes, is the way the Bible says it. It doesn't give us a number. It just says the multitudes. But there are, I think, hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. And, And the reason why they've gathered around Jesus, remember, Jesus is a unknown person to the entire nation of Israel. And yet, he has thousands of people coming to hear what he has to say. And it's because he spent time just prior to that. The the Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 4 that Jesus had been healing everyone of their infirmities, of their sickness, of, of being paralyzed. Whatever their ailment was, Jesus healed every person that came to him. Those who were oppressed by demons found freedom. All of that took place, and Jesus healed them all. And then, when he got done healing, he looked and he saw the crowd, and he sat down, and he began to teach them. But there are two things that led up to Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And the first one is, is that Jesus had the temptations that he faced as he was spending 40 days in the wilderness. He was praying and fasting. That's what we're looking at today. The other one, the second is, is this this thing I just mentioned, is his ministry prior to the, the Sermon on the Mount. Prior to giving the sermon, it's the ministry that he did. We'll look at that because it's also significant. So we're looking at that next week. And so I, I, there, there's... There's this one, remember, Jesus has been um, living with his mom and his dad. Probably at this point, Joseph is dead. He died maybe at an early age from, we don't know why, but he passed away. And so it's been Jesus and his mother and his brothers and sisters. He did have brothers and sisters, just so you know, he wasn't an only child. And and, and then nobody really knows much about Jesus at this point. But what he does is he goes to the, the Jordan River, because at the Jordan River, his cousin, John the Baptizer, is baptizing people with the baptism of repentance. Now listen, Jesus doesn't go and get baptized because he needed to repent of sin. He doesn't need to repent of sin. He's perfect. He's never sinned. He never will sin. But the reason why he goes and he gets baptized by John the Baptist is because he's being obedient to the will of his father in the fact that he will fulfill the scripture that was prophesied about him. And so he goes to John. John baptizes him. There's this great moment in that baptism that happens with Jesus. As Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water, the word says that the heavens opened up and an audible voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And at that moment, a dove 
the, the Holy Spirit represented by dove descends upon Jesus. At that moment, we get a clear picture of our triune God. The Father who said, this is my Son. The Son who was obedient to the Father. And the Holy Spirit who came and rested upon Jesus at that moment. That is significant for Jesus' ministry that he will do for the next three and a half years. Huge thing. And then what happens after that is really very interesting. And so I am just going to read it out of my Bible, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And here's what it says. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, be tempted by the devil. And and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but, from, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Amen? There's some really important things that take place as we understand this passage of Scripture before us. And the first thing that we need to notice about this aspect of Jesus' life is at the very beginning of this account. Because it says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, be tempted by the devil. There are two important things for us to take out of this one small verse. The first thing is is that Jesus was led by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, led Jesus, the Son of God, into the desert. You notice that Jesus didn't go out into the desert on his own accord. He didn't say, this is a really good spiritual discipline for me to practice. I'm going to wander off into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and I'm going to spend this time fasting. He wasn't trying to impress his disciples. He wasn't trying to impress the spiritual leaders of his day. He wasn't trying to impress his father in heaven, or his brothers, his mothers, or his sisters. Jesus didn't go because he was trying to make himself look good. He wasn't doing anything out of his own accord or out of his own will. The Holy Spirit led him, led him into the desert, and he was obedient to the will of the Father and followed the leading of the Holy Spirit in his life. Don't you find that amazing? Don't you find it absolutely amazing that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is obedient to the Father and follows the lead of the Holy Spirit. You would think that that we would pick up on something like that and we would say to ourselves, if Jesus needs to be led by the Holy Spirit, how much more 
do I need to hear the Spirit's voice in my ear? How much more do I need to be led by the Spirit of God to do the things that God's calling me to do? So that's the first thing that Jesus did. And one of the, one of the he did it out of obedience to God. And I think that sometimes we participate in spiritual disciplines because it's a really good thing to do. And, and don't get me wrong, most of the times those things are really good to do. But too often, I think there are people who are, are go to church or are Christ followers who step into spiritual disciplines for the wrong reason. Did you know that you can do spiritual disciplines for the wrong reason? Sometimes we do them because we're trying to impress others like our spouse or our children's or our pastor or leaders in the church. Or we're trying to get God's attention. We're trying to use our spiritual discipline as a bargaining tool with God. Now listen, I'm all in favor of of reading the Bible, of having a prayer time, of people even fasting, of, of people stepping into service. I'm all for that. But I'm not for it if it's for the wrong reason, for us to want to use our good works in a way that we're going to try and manipulate God into doing stuff for us or so that we can impress other people with our spiritual abilities, which is just nothing more than spiritual pride. So what I'm saying is is that when, when we sense God calling us to do something, we hear the Spirit of God calling us to do, go into prayer, to, to get into the Word of God, to um, fast from something. Um, I, you probably, a lot of you probably received the email. My wife was impressed by the Spirit of God that she needed to call people to fast with us in prayer for Priscilla. And, you know, the old, old idea of fasting is that you fast from food. But there's so much more you can fast from. You can fast from uh, electronics. You can fast from social media. You can fast from um, drinking or whatever it is that is part of your regular routine. You can say, I am going to set this up, uh, aside for now. And the time that I would normally spend doing that, I'm going to spend in prayer for this specific person or this request. That's really what fasting is all about. But we need to hear from God before we move in, because that's what Jesus did. He heard from God. The Spirit led him to it. The second thing we need to see here in this first verse is that Jesus, by the Spirit, was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What? The Spirit of God took Jesus on purpose into the desert so that he would be tempted by the devil? Are you kidding me? That doesn't sound like a God of love, does it? I really think that there are times when God takes us to places where we have to make a choice. We make a choice that we're either going to obey him, obey God in what we're doing, or we're going to do our own thing in our own strength and in our own power. We have to make a choice of who we're going to serve. Now, uh, if you go back in the Old Testament and you read about the Israelites when they came out of Egypt and and through the Exodus, and then Moses took them right up to the edge of the promised land, he handed the mantle of leadership over to Joshua. 
Joshua picked up the mantle of leadership and started to lead, do this job that God had called him to do at the age of 64. I haven't yet begun. I have a long ways to go. And and Joshua, understanding people's hearts, understanding the character of God, understanding what God's calling us to do, he threw down a challenge for all of the Israelites. But it wasn't just for them. It's for us today too. It's, It's meant for every generation of people that have walked on the planet Earth and it's particularly meant for God's people. Here's what Joshua, here was the challenge he threw down to the Israelites that's for us as well. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river and the gods of the Ammonites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You see, there comes a point when when we are faced with the challenges of life, there are things over here that are calling for our attention, and then there are the things of God that he says, you have to choose that or me. You don't get both, and we have to make a choice. And God leads us like the Spirit led Jesus into places where we have to make a conscious decision that we're either going to choose God and the things of God or we're going to follow our own desires. So Jesus goes into the wilderness, and he presses in on this. Now, there's all kinds of theological issues that can come out of, does the Spirit of God lead us to temptation? Well, I'm going to tell you no. It simply says here that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness where the enemy, the devil, tempted him. Let's not make more out of it than what's there. So let's go to verse 3. And the tempter came, remember, after 40 days of eating, not eating, of praying, communicating with the Father, 40 days, 40 nights, no food. Zero. Water? Yes. Lots of it? Yes. Food? No. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Let me just say this right at the beginning. When Satan comes to tempt us, as he tempted Jesus, he came to tempt Jesus when Jesus was at his weakest moment. Jesus was vulnerable because he had had no food He had had no contact with other people. He had been by himself for 40 days and 40 nights, spending that time in communication and talking and prayer and asking the Father. I believe that he was praying for the men he was going to choose to become his disciples. I believe he was praying about the ministry that he knew that was ahead of him. I believe he was praying about the mission that God had set him on. I believe he was praying in regards to all that God had laid before him. And after 40 days and 40 nights of prayer, he was famished, he was vulnerable, and he was there, and the tempter came at the most opportune moment to tempt Jesus. And he tempted him, first of all, with his stomach. And he says, if you are God, if you are the Son of God. Now, I want you to know something. 
the only thing that Jesus has done up to this point in his entire life that anybody outside of his family knows anything about is he just got baptized. That's the only public ministry he has had. He has made no contribution to his countrymen. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't started his ministry. He's only been a carpenter in his dad's shop where there were no miracles. And from all accounts, he's got nothing to offer to anyone. And you could actually say he might be considered a loser because he's 30 years old. He's still living with his mom and he's not married. See, in, 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 in our world, we go like, what's wrong with that guy? He's playing video games in his mom's basement and he's 30 years old and he's not married. What's wrong with that guy? Well, Jesus wasn't playing video games in his mom's basement. All right? But, but he didn't. He, he, had, he had nothing there to, to say to anybody, hey, look at me. And on top of that, nobody, here's what the enemy is saying. Here's what the tempter is saying to him. Nobody believes in you. And, and, and he says, if you are the son of God, prove it. Prove that you're the son of God. Here's some stones. Turn them into bread. Fill your stomach with them. And, and so what the devil has tempted him with is that, you're, you, you know, he's saying to him, you need to prove who you are by doing a miracle to show your power as the son of God. You need to perform in order to be accepted. That's the, that's the simple message behind this first temptation. Is your performance matters. You will not be accepted by your Father in heaven. God will never accept you until you perform up to the standard that's before you. You have to become successful in all that you do. After all, you are what you do. That's the message that the enemy was trying to portray to Jesus. He was working on Jesus to say, you're a nobody. You've done nothing. Nobody knows anything about you. And so if you want to prove that you really are the son of God and that you've got the ability to do whatever you want to do, then turn these stones into loaves of bread. Prove that you are a somebody. Prove to your father in heaven that you are worthy to be accepted. Here's, here's what happens is, is that we get that same exact message from the devil. He says that to you and he says it to me. And the temptation is for us to find our worth and significance in what we do. We think and we even feel that we really haven't been all we can be until we have found our success in our work or in our family in our education, in our relationships, and even in our status as a church person. We are nothing to God until we have found our success. We have to prove ourselves to God. But the problem is, is when we believe that lie, that we have to perform in order to be accepted by God, we have fallen for it, and we've given into the temptation that we are only accepted to God because of our performance. And that what I am and what I do is what matters in my relationship to God. Therefore, I will be fully accepted to God when I have succeeded enough in God's eyes. You see, that's the message of every other religion. That's the message that everybody else out there is preaching, that you have to do, 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 do in order to be accepted. But the problem with doing all the doing is you don't know when you've done enough to be accepted. So you just keep on this cycle and you keep doing and doing and doing. 
And the problem is, is that the success tempts us to find our worth and value outside of God's inexhaustible free love for us in Christ Jesus. I want you to look at how Jesus responded to the tempter. He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do you see what Jesus just did? He turned around and he said, Listen, I think that what you're saying is not necessarily true because the the place where we find our significance, the place where we find our value is as we spend our time in this love letter that God has written to us and we understand who we are and who I am. Jesus knows that the ability to stand against the temptation from the enemy is always found in the word of God. God's word is powerful and effective and it gives us strength and discernment in the face of temptation and in our trying times. I have watched this firsthand as my daughter and my son-in-law have been tempted to, to just give up on God. Because here they have set off in their own minds, their own thought process from past experience of the heart operations that Priscilla has gone through. Now they're looking and they're saying, here's what we expect God to do. This is our expectation. And yet over here is the reality of what's going on. And so when reality doesn't meet expectation, that becomes the room for disappointment. And who are we disappointed with? God. And is it okay to be disappointed with God? Yes. Is it okay to be angry with God? Yes. Is it okay to tell God, I think this really sucks right now? Yeah. Do you know why it's okay to do that? Because he's the one that created you and he gave you those emotions and he wants you to step in and acknowledge them. The worst place to go is into the phony spot where we say, oh, praise Jesus, it's all okay. Eventually, we will get there. But we have to go through this, this whole thing first. And, and we respond to the temptations that are, and trials of life that are set before us by sticking to the Word of God because it's the only truth in those difficult times. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If You are the son of God. Throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now the the enemy is very crafty in what he does and what he has done now is he has taken the very word of God because Jesus just said that we don't live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth from the mouth of God. Now he's turning that around on Jesus and he's saying, oh yeah? So here's what the word of God says. You can throw yourself off of here and God's going to protect you. His angels are going to catch you. Now the reason why this temptation to Jesus could be appealing is remember Jesus has no identity in Israel in the nation in the region in his own hometown they know a few people know him as a carpenter and when you take a look at what's going on here the 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 tempter the devil is playing mind games with Jesus he's playing mind games with him because he says again the little word if if you are That's saying that you have done nothing to show yourself 
to the people that you are the son of God. You have done nothing. Nobody will believe you. Nobody knows you. You're an unknown entity to everybody in the world. And you have no history with these people. And by the way, you think you're the one, the Messiah that's here to save them? They don't even know who you are. They don't even know that you exist. So what you need to do is you need to, to make a name for yourself. You need to, to create a place where you can just come Throw yourself off this pinnacle because you know your Father in heaven. He'll rescue you and you'll, he'll, all these angels will appear and take care of you in front of all the people. And when that happens, they're all going to go, you're the Messiah. You're the guy. You will become popular. The people will follow you. They will listen to your message. They will do what you want to do. We, all you have to do is just throw yourself off of here. Because after all, what happens is, is that the temptation here that is saying this is that you are only what others think of you. That's what the devil was saying to Jesus. Right now, you're a nobody. Nobody knows you. Nobody cares about you. Nobody even has a a clue about you. So you've got nothing. You need to create an identity of yourself. You can do this because you're the son of God. If you're the son of God, you can do this. And that's that's the same message that's coming to us. the, the, The enemy wants us to respond to these things so that we're going like, I need to test God on this to see if this is what God wants us to do. But I want you to notice again what Jesus said. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In this response, Jesus is simply saying that God is not there for us to test him to see exactly what he will or will not do for us. Uh, You know, I think that that even though Jesus was on the pinnacle and he understood the laws of gravity. And you step off the pinnacle, you're going to go, that's it. And, And so he's not going to test God in that way. Because here's what we do. For us, we walk by faith knowing that God is always there for us. God was always there for Jesus. When we call on his name, when he shows up in our lives, it's for the greatness of his name. Now, see, that's what Jesus was looking at. Because if you remember about other teachings that we've gone through in the Bible, is that what Jesus came to this earth to do was to glorify the Father in everything that he did. Matter of fact, he, when he was going to the cross, he said, Father, don't, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But not for my sake, but for your name's sake. For your glory, God, I will do this. Going to the cross is for the glory of the Father. And so he's going to glorify the Father in everything that he does. And that's what we are to do. We're not there to to build our names. We're not there to make us look great. It's not our status or our popularity that matters. It's the name of Jesus that matters. Verses 8 and 9. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, this is a pretty big temptation. Now, I have never been tempted this way. Nobody said, hey, I will give you the kingdom of Lander if you worship me. Okay, not really interested. Um, But there's this subtle shift in the devil's approach with Jesus right now. 
Whereas the first two temptations, he used that word, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God. He was playing mind games with Jesus. He was trying to cause him to doubt really the, the, who he was in, in his status with God. He was trying to make him think, am I really the son of God? Am I really, does the father really love me? Is this going on with me and the father? But you know, well, like I said at the beginning of this talk, is the one thing that happened prior to Jesus going into the desert is that the heavens opened up and the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. You know Jesus banked that in his mind. And every time the temptation came, he heard the words of his father. You're my beloved son, and I am well pleased with you. And so the enemy recognizes that he's getting nowhere on this strategy with Jesus. And so he takes a different approach. So he's no longer trying to bring doubt into Jesus' mind as to who he is. Now he's appealing to Jesus' desire for possessions. There's only one person that, that could... This could appeal to, to possess the world, unless you, you talk about some of the people in the history who thought that they were going to rule the world, these lunatics. Jesus was not. And, and so the enemy comes and he says, here's all these kingdoms of the world, and, and I'm, going to, I'm going to show you them in all of their glory, and he's going to give them to Jesus if Jesus will just simply fall down and worship him. It's important to understand what he says when, you, when, he, when he says, fall down and worship me. What he is saying to Jesus is, you need to submit your life to me. And when you do that, I'll give all of this to you. Do you know who said that? For real? Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these other things will be added to you. You see, the devil's trying to be God again. He's trying to take a role that he doesn't own. Matter of fact, the craziest part about all of this is who does the devil think he's kidding? I'm going to give you all of these kingdoms? Does he own those kingdoms? No. He's get to, he says he's going to give something away that's not even his to give away. Jesus doesn't fall for that ploy. Jesus understands and knows exactly who he is. And, and so it's written, you know, it's got this thing going on. And what he's what he is pressing in on Jesus is that you need these possessions, this world, these kingdoms, in order to prove who you are. And, and the message is this, what the enemy is saying to Jesus. I am what I have. What I have makes me who I am. Jesus, you've got nothing. You've done nothing. You're a nobody. If you bow down to me, I'll give you all of this, and you can rule all of it. Now, here's the other, other truth that we have to know about the devil, the tempter. He is the father of lies. So what he told Jesus is an absolute lie. Even if he could give the kingdoms to Jesus, which he couldn't, if Jesus did bow down and worship him, he would not give to him what he promised he would give to him. And that's what the devil does all the time. He makes promises to people all the time that if you do this, you're going to get this. And you're going to be happy. And it's a lie. Now, here, here's, here's this whole thing because it's on possessions. You know, the temptation regarding possessions. Because he can never deliver on that promise. And I believe that's why we have so many people in debt. They hear the promise of a better life, more friends, more opportunity. Your life will be greater, better, better served. You are going to be somebody really important if you just have you fill in the blank. 
That's what happens. We got this whole thing on possessions going on, and, and it's a promise of possessions that, that, that we think is going to be great, but what that promise is, it's a lie, and it's brought this entire country to a place of unprecedented debt. Listen to this. I just got this. This is fre- fresh from June 2018. This is the latest research and um, understanding of what's going on. Now, for people who have credit card debt, because not everybody in the U.S. has credit card debt. There are those people who are blessed by Dave Ramsey. Dave's a good guy, but he and I are not that good of friends. I'm just telling you. So, so there are people that live without credit card debt. But there is an enormous amount of people who carry credit card debt from one month to the next month. Here is what the av- if you average it out to everybody that has credit card debt, it would be $15,482 that they carry every month. You add all those people up, add all of that debt together just for credit cards, it comes, it's just credit cards, it's not an overdraft, because overdraft bumps it up even higher. Just credit card debt that people carry, our nation carries from month to month, is $927 billion of debt. Now, not all debt is bad debt. I believe that mortgages are pretty good debt to get into. And so, here's what it is for mortgage. The average mortgage, when you take everybody that has a mortgage in the United States, the average amount of money is $181,176. That's the average mortgage for people that have mortgages. You add up all of those mortgages, and our nation is mortgaged to the tune of 9 trillion dollars let's move on auto loans people that own or or have a car that they're making payments on the average payment or amount of debt on an auto loan is $27,669 or you add them all up together it's $1.24 trillion that this country owes on auto loans Now you go to student loans. All the students that owe money, the average is $46,950 or $1.41 trillion of student loan in this country. And then you go to just all other kinds of accumulated debt like medical debt and uh, debt from divorce and other things. You add that up because there's a whole different group of people out there and that average debt in that in those households is $134,058 of just debt. It's not credit card, it's not student loan, it's not a mortgage, it's not a car loan, it's just other debt. And that adds up to $13.29 trillion. Do you think we have a problem with debt? Do you think we have a problem with possessions, wanting things that we shouldn't be going after. Because here's where it all kind of gets to. The temptation is to get into debt. It, and it's an, overwhelming, it's an overwhelming temptation because all these different companies that do advertisements on television, they're spending $18 billion a year on advertisements to get you to buy the stuff that you know you don't need. 
to get you to go into debt that you don't need. And the problem is, is we have this debt crisis on our hands. And it affects not just, it affects people in the church too. Matter of fact, it really makes me sad when I hear people say, I owe so much money in debt that I can't give anything to God. That breaks my heart because now they've become the, the, the slaves to debt. And the reason that they feel that way is that they've given into the lie from the tempter that possessions are highly important and your possessions make who you are. You have to look good in order to be accepted. We have bought into the lie that what I have determines who I am. Here's where, as Christ followers, we get things backwards. We believe that we can't live without certain things, and so we're willing to go into enormous debt to get those things, and yet we turn around and we say to God, I've got nothing to give you because all my money goes over here to all this stuff that I don't need. God, God says a lot about money because he knows, he knows this aspect of our lives that we are so tempted to step into debt and become debt people. It's, here's what it says in Malachi 3. I think this is past, one of pastor's favorite passages of scripture when it comes to talking about money. You'll see why. Will man rob God? Yet you were robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and your contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you blessings until there is no more need. Jesus just said earlier, we're not supposed to test the Lord our God. That's true. But there's one place that God says you can test Him in. You give. You cannot outgive God. You cannot do it. You give, God's going to outgive you. I don't know how it's going to look, but I will tell you one thing, that as long as Lorinda and I have been tithing, which has been about 30 years, we've been married 35 years, we got serious about it five years into our marriage, and we have been tithing ever since, and I will tell you one thing, we, have, we, we always tithe first, God gets the cream of the crop, we give that to him first, and then we pay all of our bills after that, we buy our groceries, we have never missed of uh, paying our bills, and we have never gone hungry, and our kids have never not had clothes. Because God is faithful in his promises to us. And so what happens is, is that we have this two pro, twofold problem in letting possessions become our dictator. First, we end up worshiping our possessions. They, they promise to give us security, status, acceptance, and prestige. In other words, they're the things that make us look like a God and feel like a God, small g. Second, we now say to this new small g God that has taken control of my finances that I can no longer let God have control of my finances because I don't have any to let God control. They're all given away to these small g gods. And when you won't give to God, what you're saying to God is this in your local church, 
I don't believe in your mission and I definitely don't believe in, in, in the commitment and I'm not committed to your plans. When you don't give to God, you're never giving to me and you're not giving to this church, you're giving to God. But when you withhold and you don't give what God's calling you to give, you are saying to God, I don't believe in your mission and, I don't, and I'm not committed to your plan. That's what happens when we give into the tempter and his schemes. Remember, the devil has a threefold purpose for your life. He has three things he wants to do to your life. He wants to rob, kill, and destroy you and your family. And the number one way he wants to see that come about is by bringing you into a place of deep debt. Now look what Jesus said to him. Verses 10 through 11. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord, and him only shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus' response to temptation of possession is that, that, if you, is that God is the only one that should have my heart. Because where your heart is, is where your treasure is. If your heart is on, on the things of God, that's where your treasure is. If your heart is on the things of this world, that is where your treasure is. That is the message from Jesus. The enemy of our soul will bring these three great temptations to our door every day. He is out to tell you and me that we are only good as long as we do what we do. We perform to be good enough to God. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we need to find approval of others to find value and meaning in our lives. That's popularity. That's the second thing. And you are what you have, possessions. You are only as good as the newest thing that you've got. So what's the person to do? How are we supposed to handle this? Well, thankfully, we have the proper response to all of these and other temptations exhibited by Jesus. With every temptation, Jesus' response started with these words. It is written. The way we respond to every temptation that comes to our life is we stand on the word of God because it's the only thing that gives us strength that is stable and is truthful. That's where we start with temptation is on the word of God. Jesus didn't use logic. He didn't use justification. He didn't use his own intellect or wisdom. He made a stand on the word of God and God's word alone. That's where we fight all temptation. Temptation is not sin. It's giving into temptation that becomes sin. Our second line of defense is what God has provided for us found in 1 Corinthians, which says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide a way of escape that you may be, be able to endure it. So whenever you're tempted, God's already said, Look, here's the exit right here. Get out of the temptation by following my word and exiting the place where you're at and being tempted. If you don't know God's word, and if you're not in God's word, then you don't know how to exit, and you don't have a plan for exit. But God says he's always got one there for you. And when you're tempted, I want you to also remember this from 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in this world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. When temptation comes, know this. 
God chose you. God chose you and he loves you. And the very same words that he spoke to Jesus when he was baptized are the same words he speaks to you today. He says, you are my beloved son, my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. I want you to take that because that's what you bank on. When the tempter comes to your life, when he throws temptation down in your face, you remember that you are a child of God and he chose you. And then you stand firm on the word of God. God always provides a way out under the pressure of temptation, no matter how great or enticing. Our God is for us. He is in our corner. He loves you dearly. He wants you to succeed in his success plan, not the world's. And so trust God as you go. Amen? Our Father, we are so thankful that Jesus was obedient and followed the leading of the Spirit into the desert. And as he withstood the temptation that the enemy, the tempter, threw at him, that he showed us what it takes to withstand temptation and to get out from underneath it. We thank you for those encouraging words that Paul has given to us that no matter what the temptation is, it's not so great that we can't overcome it and that you always provide a way out for us and that you are the one that chose us and you call us beloved son and beloved daughter and you are well pleased with us. So God, may you be glorified in our lives as we flee from and avoid the pitfalls of the tempter. May you be praised. May you be glorified. And all God's people said, Amen.